Good morning, North Boulevard. Welcome back to the stage. John, it's kind of like a Led Zeppelin reunion up here. It's what it feels like to me, at least. <laughs> or Journey. Was it Journey? It's Led Zeppelin, and Zeppelin's good. Hey, I'm so glad you guys are here. I missed you guys. I had uh, strep throat and bronchitis at the same time for a couple of weeks. And then also last Sunday, I was at West Campus. Glad to see you here. You guys, just uh, those of you who are online, you, you won't know from being online, perhaps, just how rowdy it feels right now and how excited it is and how powerful the singing is. So welcome those of you who are online, those of you who are here in person. I'm super excited about being back with you and uh, preaching out of Genesis 28. I want to invite you to open up a Bible. Genesis 28, and uh, let's see if we can't draw a lesson out of this just for Christmas season 2020 COVID-19. How about that? So uh, in uh, in his uh, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien tells a story about how Frodo has to go into this uh, devastating mountain where he's got to drop the ring to save Middle Earth, and it's this, you know, dreadful journey of life, and he learns all this stuff about himself, and it's a dangerous journey and all this sort of stuff. But at some point, as he's doing, doing his thing, uh, the wise Gandalf says to him, listen, in fact, I want to get his quote right, we cannot choose the time that we live in. We can only choose what we do with the time that we're given. Seems to me to be a fairly, a fairly appropriate statement for the year 2020. None of us picked 2020. I don't think that in January of 2020 or even in February of 2020, we had any idea that the year would turn out to look as it has looked. And now as the year begins to wind down, it seems to me that we're getting closer and closer to looking in our rearview mirror and seeing 2020 behind us. This week, the CDC has approved a vaccination. I think on Monday, Pfizer sends out three million doses of it. I'm guessing within the next several months, there'll be a couple of hundred million doses sent out. Uh, it appears that uh, the stock market's doing great. And you may think to yourself, well, I don't care about the stock market, but it usually means good jobs. And it usually means good paychecks for people. It matters right now. Uh, one of the hottest real estate markets in the world today is in Rutherford County, Tennessee, and houses are going like, uh, like, uh, like um, what? Like something really fast. They're going like pancakes. Is it pancakes? Hotcakes? I, was, I thought hotcakes, and I started thinking, wait, is that even a word? I've never even had a hotcake. I've had a hot date. It's very similar, but it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where that came from. Uh, so here's what I'm saying. I think even masks, I think we're not that far away from looking in our rearview mirror and saying, well, thank God he got us through the year 2020. We didn't see it coming, but God has been with us every step of the way. He hasn't left us yet. He's not going to leave us. And this is what I want you to see in the story I'm going to share this week. Yeah. The story I want you to see is that there is a ladder connecting earth and heaven. At the top of the ladder is a God who is always faithful to his promises, including those he's made to you and to me. So Genesis 28, it is the story of Bethel, Jacob's ladder, and these angels ascending and descending back and forth. The uh, story has spawned uh, uh, 10,000, if not 100,000 different memes around the world. So there are all paintings named after this that tell the story of Jacob's ladder, one of my favorite from Mark Chagall, Chagall who, whose art I like anyway, about Jacob and his ladder. There are sculptures all over the world, this one from Ohio, that represents Jacob's ladder or the ladder connecting heaven and earth. Some of you have been to Abilene Christian University. This is a, 
a sculpture that's there on their property. It's been about 10 years or so, really worth seeing. It's a beautiful sculpture celebrating Jacob's Ladder. There are state parks and mountains named Jacob's Ladder. There are hiking trails named Jacob's Ladder. There are flowers named Jacob's Ladder. There's actually an electrical current named Jacob's Ladder. You can look at it and see why it would get named that as this current works its way up these metal rods here. There is a uh, reading comprehensive program named Jacob's Ladder, actually more than one. There are universities named Bethel after Jacob's Ladder. I think something like 20 different states in the U.S. have a city or a town named Bethel after the vision we're going to talk about, Jacob's Ladder. There is not just one, but there are more than one movies named Jacob's Ladder or somehow connected to Jacob's Ladder. There's a toy that is named Jacob's Ladder. Some of you who've been able to go back to the gym perhaps have worked out on a stair step that is called Jacob's Ladder. And if you ever go to the U.K., there's a short rib in the U.K. that's literally called the short rib of Jacob's Ladder. And those of you who enjoy a good cigar now and then, there's actually a cigar named Jacob's Ladder. And then the greatest, most classic hit in all of rock and roll, almost performed by John Magnuson just now, Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin, named after Jacob's Ladder. So what's the deal with Jacob's Ladder? Why is there so much interest in this story? A story that really comes to us from the Middle Bronze Age. So it's probably 3,500 years old. Why do we still care about this? Why do we still tell the story? Why is it that so many people are so interested in this? Let me just give you the shortest answer. The shortest answer is because it's a mystical story about a vision or a dream a guy had that affirms what each of us hopes is true inside. Standing at the top of heaven's ladder is a God who is always faithful to his promises. That's what we get out of the story. Let me read to you a small excerpt from the story, make a few comments, and then I want to give you the assurance that as you're headed into the holidays, and some of us will be um, experiencing holidays like we've never experienced before. Our families might not be with us. Traditions, many traditions have been set on hold. I've done, I've personally done eight funerals since the pandemic. Uh, We have a funeral again even tomorrow, one of our um, Long-term members, uh, Lewis Noakes. By the way, Lewis Noakes and Vivian have been married for 73 years. Listen to this. You know when they started liking each other? They met each other in kindergarten. And since kindergarten, they've been committed to one another. And he's passed. So it's just a difficult time. The family will have to have holidays without him. In difficult times, what I want you to walk away with as we go into the holiday season is the assurance and the hope that God is always faithful to his promises. And even better, he's faithful to his promises in spite of the fact that we're unfaithful. He's still faithful. So let's start in Genesis 28, verse 10. I hope you have a Bible in front of you, even though I have it on the wall. It's just really helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you, even those of you who are watching from your home. So here we go. Uh, we're starting in the city of Bethel. We'll talk about it in just a second. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. So, a little backstory. Jacob is the twin of Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob's name actually means, well, if we were to turn it into a metaphor, it means something like trickster or joker. Because when Jacob is born, Esau's born first, the twins, but Jacob has his hand on the heel of Esau. And the parents said it's obvious that Jacob's trying to take Esau's place. He wants his birthright. So on the issue of birthright, a father gave his property to the oldest son. Now, the reason they did that is because property was scarce. If you divide it, 
Now you only have half the property. Then if you give it to your other sons and divide it again, you eventually reach the point where the property's not worth having. So they had to keep the property in the family. So Jacob evidently is trying, even from birth, to take the place of his older brother. And Jacob lives a life of a deceiver. In fact, when we get to 28, we've just finished the story of Jacob tricking his father into giving Jacob the blessing that was due to his older brother Esau. Jacob was not a good man. He's one of the worst characters in the lineage of Abraham. He's a trickster. He's named a trickster. And now he's on the run because his father Isaac has said, I don't want you to marry these Canaanite women. I want you to go find someone who's kin to you. Sounds odd to us. Well, maybe not if you're from Tennessee, but it's generally... It's an odd way to think, but remember that people lived in clans. And what he's arguing is, I want people who worship the same God as you worship. Don't go marry outside and worship these pagans who are worshiping, and marry a pagan who's worshiping pagan gods. So he sent, um, he sent Jacob from Beersheba to Haran. Haran's in Mesopotamia. It's a very long journey. And one can imagine that Jacob must feel alone. Jacob's brother soon is going to expose a plot to kill Jacob. So Jacob must know he's running for his life. He must have felt all alone. Here we go. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. So from Beersheba up to Haran, Haran's not even on my map. It's a very long journey, especially for a man on the run. He stops at a place... We'll later uh, learn that the na- place name is Bethel, but it was originally called Luz. And I just want you to see an image of it. So this was actually, I think Paul Skidmore took this picture. I don't remember if it was Paul or Thad or Jonathan, or, but a group of us were there at Bethel. And I just, maybe you can just see the sense of mysticism that shra- shrouds this particular place, Bethel. In fact, I have a second photograph as well. So Bethel is about, it's at elevation about 26 or 700 feet elevation. And even today it has a certain mysticism to it. And the night that Jacob stopped there, he had no idea of what was going to happen. Now there was a town not too far from Bethel, but at the time the town was named Luz. And Luz is a Hebrew term that means almond tree. Now this matters, so I don't want to just, I'm not just giving you trivia. The almond tree not only is a fantastic tree, but the almond tree is called the deceiver tree. So I want you to see the parallel. It's called the deceiver tree in Hebrew. You know why? Because it puts out its blossom first. It's the first tree to blossom, but it's the last tree to give you its fruit. And so even today, Rachel and I were, um, we were hiking in the Atlas Mountains down in the southern part of Morocco. Remember that seven or eight years ago? I don't remember when it was, Rachel. And we had a Berber guide who was taking us on, these, on this mountain hike in, in the uh, Atlas Mountains. And as we passed a certain tree, so Berbers are, they're not even Arab, although he spoke Arabic. As we passed a tree, he pointed it out and he said, now this is a, an almond tree. And I said, what's the Arabic word for it? He said, luz. I said, well, it's the same as the Hebrew word. And he said, yeah, but we don't like those trees. They're tricking trees. And I said, why are they tricky? He said, because they put out a blossom and you think the spring is here. But the bad weather hasn't stopped yet. Well, the Hebrews thought the same thing. Remember, Jesus says that. You look at the almond tree and you think winter, that winter is finally over and it turns out it's not. Well, it's a tricky tree. So here we have a guy whose name means tricky, stopping at a town that means tricky, and he has a dream about his God. The reason I want to underscore this, by the way, here's an image of the almond tree in bloom. Uh, it looks similar to a Bradford pear to me. The reason I want to point this out is because I want you to know the promises you're about to hear The promises you're about to hear are unconditional. That's really important. 
God doesn't premise the promises He made to Jacob on Jacob's behavior. Because if God were going to give this promise to somebody who was behaving, it sure wouldn't have been Jacob. Jacob, as I said, was the worst guy in Abraham's lineage up to this point. He's not a good man. But God had made an unconditional promise to Abraham. I am going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. He doesn't ask Abraham, is this okay with you? God doesn't even, he doesn't ask any questions. He just announces, this is my promise. So when he speaks to Jacob, he just says to Jacob, I'm still standing by my promises. My promises are unconditional. By the way, you know why that matters? Because right now, some of you are asking yourselves the question, do God's promises apply to me? For some of you, the pandemic has made your marriages stronger. You're working from home and you fell in love with her even more so. And for others, even it's exposed a lot of weaknesses. For some of you, it's created an enormous amount of stress. And you must be wondering, do God's promises apply to me? I just read the other day, there were more suicides in the country of Japan in November than there have been deaths due to COVID throughout the entire pandemic in Japan. The suicide rate has gone up because of the stress on people. If you had an addiction before the pandemic, odds are it's twice as bad now. And you got to be wondering to yourself, do God's promises apply to me? Mental health issues. I mean, just the craziness, the edginess that so many of us have endured. Surely you're asking yourself the question, yeah, but do God's promises apply to me? What you're going to see is that if God promises something to Jacob, if he's given him an unconditional promise, you're going to be okay. Because Jacob was not a good guy. God's promises are unconditional. No matter what you do, God's going to be faithful to whatever he promises. That's really good news for us. So here's Jacob. He sets up a stone. Maybe this one is a little trivia. So for a lot of us, we think of Jacob using a stone as a pillow as an odd thing. But actually, in places in Africa, still stones are used. And in Egypt, this was a typical pillow in Egypt. It was made out of stone. You rested your neck on it. Some of us still use neck pillows today. The cool thing is when you go to Bethel, this is a photograph I took in Bethel, there are stones that are shaped like pillows all over the place. It's almost as though God picked Bethel just so he could say, see all these stones that look like pillows? So here's Jacob resting, and here's the important part. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, so this is just what you would think it is. This is a statement that whatever is here on earth is intimately connected to the God who is in heaven. This is what Revelation is about. In the book of Revelation, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath, every time something in heaven happens, something corresponds to that on earth. It's a statement that heaven is still in charge of earth. God's not giving up. God is in charge of the pandemic, and he's going to be in charge of whatever happens next. When January rolls around, assuming we have a new president, I don't know how that's going to sort out, God's still going to be in charge. God's not going to let go of his throne. He won't be in peace. He's not going to step down. He's in charge. That's what this whole story is about. You can trust this God. Here's what the Lord says. He says, I am the Lord, which by the way is, it's not an oath, but it's kind of an oath. It's the, it's the Lord saying, hey, do you know who I am? Do you, know who you, do you know who I am? I am the Lord. 
I'm the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants on the, the land on which you're lying. Notice it's not a conditional promise. He's not saying, I'm thinking about giving it to you if you'll just do this or that. It's a done deal. I'm giving it to you. When God made the promise, he was not going to go back. Even if he had to find somebody else to fulfill it through, he was not going to go back on it. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west, to the east, the north, and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you. I will watch over you. This is God saying to a trickster, to a deceiver, to a really foul and vulgar man, I'm going to be with you because I got plans for you. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's why we write songs about it. That's like I'm tingling just reading the text up here. I mean, I really am. That's why we write songs about it. That's why we want to name our schools. This is why even sometimes people will pick the name Bethel for a family member. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, set, uh, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top. In other words, he wanted to mark the place. I don't want to forget this place. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So when Luz means almond tree, Bethel is a Hebrew phrase that means God's house, the house of God. I've had the opportunity to go there a couple of different times, several times to Bethel. It's never crowded, by the way. It's in the West Bank, so it's in Palestinian territory. It's really not, not many tourists go there. I've been there sometimes when maybe two or three of us were the only ones anywhere to be seen. Every time I go, my spine tingles because I do have that sense that the ladder is still here. God is still in control. His promises are still secure. They're unconditional promises. God meant what he said. Standing at the top of heaven's ladder is a God who is faithful and who keeps his promises. You know, every couple of years I like to go through what I consider to be the seven best promises of God. The Bible has a lot of promises. There are seven that I think are the best. The best for me, I should say. And by the way, before I even go through them, let me just say a few things that aren't promised. The Bible doesn't promise that you're not going to die here on earth because you are. So when we say goodbye to our loved ones, that's not a violation of God's promise. God's promise is not that you won't die. His promise is he'll raise you from the dead. God's, by the way, God doesn't promise you you're going to have a great marriage. You know that? He never promised you're going to have a great marriage. What he promised is he's going to give you a strategy for how to be a great husband or how to be a great wife. God never promised that you're going to get a hot date. I just came up with that one. He never promised that. He didn't promise that your girlfriend wouldn't break up with you or boyfriend wouldn't break up with you. God didn't promise that you're going to get an awesome senior trip. He never promised you that. He never promised you that you're going to get your vacation in 2020. He did not make that promise. So don't hold on to things God didn't promise. Surely we've learned that. Try this. Hold on to the things he did promise. Because the things he did promise are even better than the things he didn't promise. Can I just walk through the seven? I'll do it quickly. First, Paul says when he, 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 he's writing in 2 Corinthians about some kind of a thorn in his side, he says, some kind of thorn in his flesh. We don't even know what it was. A sickness, who knows what it was. 
He says, three times I said, God, would you remove this? It's inhibiting my ministry. And God says three times back, nope, my grace is all you need. The first promise I just want to point out is God will give you grace. Now, oftentimes when we say grace, we mean forgiveness. And that's good because grace is forgiveness. God will forgive me of my sins. But you know, grace can mean even more than that. It can be a form of strength. Here's how I think this text means. Sometimes grace is a gentle, kind, or loving touch in the middle of a stressful moment. So grace is a friend who called you right at the right moment. Just when you thought, I don't think I'm going to get through this day, and a friend sends you a text. That's grace. We have a sweet, sweet member here. Uh, I talked with her probably six, eight, ten months ago. I don't even know when it was now. Her adult daughter had uh, a rare brain tumor. We talked about it, and I said, you know, I'd love to tell that story. And we never really got it all hammered out how I would tell the story. But in, in, in your Christmas letter, you know who I'm talking. I'm not going to mention names. You just described the, the blessing of what God did. Three surgeries in nine days. Convalescent, the rehab, uncertainty about all the things that could go wrong. If we have a son who had brain surgery, we've counted all the ways it can go wrong. And then the letter that I brought up here that I'm not going to say who wrote, all she can talk about are the miracles, the little acts of grace God gave her in the middle of all that, gave the family, the brother who, who cared for the sister. There was the rehab nurse who had gone into administration and stopped working with patients, but not when she met her daughter. She gave up administration temporarily just to care for the daughter. And then to find the best neurosurgeon in Middle Tennessee, and then an especially touching story. Right after one of the surgeries, his mom, who wrote me the letter, steps on the elevator to go away. Another man steps on the elevator and says, what do you say to your daughter when you only have two weeks left to live? She said, I didn't get off the elevator. I didn't, I didn't go down. I got off. And I went back in and I thanked God that my daughter's going to live. You see, that's a person who sees there's grace even in hardship. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. I got some guesses, and I know what some of you are going through. I should actually temper that a little bit. Maybe some frustration, maybe some fear, and maybe something really dreadful just on your horizon. But I want you to know God is going to give you all kinds of acts of grace in the middle of that. That's what he does. Look for it, and you'll find it. And when you see it, you just realize, wow, in spite of my stupidity, he still shows me grace. You know how many perfect people God works with? Zero. He only works with imperfect people because that's all he's got. That includes you. It includes me. God also says that he will never leave you. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8, Moses is not allowed to go over to the land of promise because he had sinned. So he's talking to Joshua. He says to Joshua, you're about to carry the people over. Do not be afraid, but be strong. God will always be with you. This is told to us repeatedly in Scripture. God will never leave you. He'll be with you in the middle of your storms. So at West Campus yesterday, one of our dear members uh, passed away. He was actually very influential in helping us to build our, preparing to build our new building over at the West Campus. So he helped us pick the land. It was a very sudden thing that he discovered he had um, cancer. Glenn Norman. I, I prayed with Glenn this past week. I didn't know, I didn't know it would go this fast. I said, Diane, if you're there, I didn't know it would go this fast. I know you didn't either. 
But I, as I was praying with the family, I just, I heard them both speak about the God who's still with them. We have a young man. His wife's grandmother was a faithful member at North Boulevard. She passed away. Family's still faithful Christians. They're not at North Boulevard, but they're faithful Christians. Actually, I think they'll be online with us today. I'm just going to say his first name. His first name is Davin. Davin's 33 years old, has two little boys, and found out he has Lou Gehrig's disease. I prayed with him this week. And as we were praying, I was just so struck, Gavin, by your faith in God. He said, I'm not giving up, he says, and I know who is with me. Don't you see that? Even when you don't recognize it. So Jacob is lying there sleeping on a rock and he doesn't yet know who's with him. But when he wakes up, he realizes, oh my goodness, this was already sacred ground. I just didn't know it. So whatever you're going through right now, it's already sacred ground. Just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean it's not. Soon you'll wake up and you'll be able to look back and say, oh, now I see what he's doing. By the way, I want you to pray for Davin, D-A-V-I-N. Think David, only Davin. Pray for him. God will protect you during your trials. So the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10 is that every time, every time we're tested or tempted or tried, God will give us some kind of protection, some kind of escape. I just was thinking about that. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and I don't know why this one came to mind, but this did come to mind. So I'm old enough to remember. Maybe that's why it came to mind. The Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was, uh, at least according to one president, an evil empire. It's a Marxist country that had murdered as many as 10 million of its own citizens. I can remember when they had 10,000 nuclear weapons pointed at the United States of America. And I remember the fear of not knowing for sure if they were going to destroy the planet. You know one way that God, one way, there are many ways, but one way that God destroyed the Soviet Union. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. You'll never guess how. God decided to destroy the Soviet Union by getting, by using, not getting, by using a drunk man named Jack. A drunk man named Jack in the year 1921 brought down the Soviet Union. You know how? Jack had been an alcoholic. He was abusive, and he had created a very unpleasant home for his uh, family. One day in 1921, Jack had passed out in the front yard in the snow, and his 10-year-old son looked out and saw him. And he made an oath then and there. I'm going to do my best, he said, to make this world a better place. He was baptized into a church of Christ, literally. It's called Disciples of Christ, but at that time we were the same. And he made a commitment, I'm going to make the world a better place. He went into acting and radio work, and eventually he was elected president of the United States of America. His name is Ronald Reagan. And he made the decision to make the world a better place when he decided, I'm never going to be like my dad. He helped bring down that evil Marxist government. He did. You can say whatever. You, you don't have to like Reagan to know that he did. Here's my point. You can't tell right now what God might be doing to protect you in the future. Who knows but what some drunk guy today is God's salvation for you tomorrow. We just don't know what God's going to do. These are the sorts of things God does regularly because God protects us. He gives us what we need. God gives us what we need. I'm going to run out of time, and I've got three or four more promises to go. So let me just, I just let me do this. 
I have several I want to do, but I, let me, we were just talking about this. Um, I've told you this story so many times, but I, there's a part I haven't told you. I hope my friends, uh, Pastor Lee, I hope you and others are watching from ICC, Washington, D.C. Many Pentecostal churches expect Jesus to come back to Jerusalem literally and set up a new kingdom in Jerusalem literally. They call that the restoration, the restoration of Israel. Coincidentally, and meanwhile, churches of Christ have what we call a restoration as well. We mean restoring the church to the New Testament along the lines of what Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell did. The two don't mean the same at all. They're not even connected. Most of you didn't know the Pentecostals called Jesus coming back to Jerusalem the restoration. I assure you most Pentecostals have no idea that we call our history the restoration. Now, there's the backstory. Back seven, six, seven, eight years ago, I don't even remember when it was, a Pentecostal, Korean Pentecostal church, you've heard this story, but you had not heard this part, in Washington, D.C. decides to do a seminar on the restoration movement. They met the return of Jesus to the city of Jerusalem. They start looking around and they found that there is a speaker down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who speaks a lot about the restoration movement, by which we meant the history of the churches of Christ. Not knowing the difference, they called said minister and said, would you be willing to come and talk about the restoration? I said, sure, it's one of my favorite subjects. I got all my pictures of the Church of Christ history out. I flew up to Washington, D.C. No sooner had I got there than I realized, oh my goodness, they don't mean anything like what I mean by this. This is history's biggest mistake. I just thought I'm going to make the best of it. So I preached on both of them. The New Jerusalem, the history of the church, going back to the Bible and so forth, at a church that I still adore. Meanwhile, driving me from place to place the whole weekend I'm there is some little guy that I didn't have a conversation with until the last minute he's taking me to the airport. I look over at him and say, I don't even know who you are. He says, well, I'm Ken Carlson. Now, here's what you don't know. Well, that's the part, that's the part you didn't know. Here's what I want to say. That's the part you probably didn't know. If, they had, if I had said, wait, no, restoration, that's, that's not what I talk about. I talk about, I mean something different. On a mistake, I meet this guy. Between that man and Paul Skidmore, not only was my son's soul saved, I think they saved his life. I had no idea back then that I was going to need them. I had no idea I was going to need Ken Carlson in my life, the guy that was driving me around. On an accident, an accidental phone call, God saves my son. You see, he's already assembling the rescue team for you. You just don't know it yet. Maybe you're like Jacob. It's just Luz to you. It's not Bethel yet. He's faithful to his promises, I have to end this sermon. He'll give you strength. I at least want you to see them. By the way, I circulated a little document. It's probably online still. Strength for the day. It's got all seven promises in there. If you're thinking, I want to write all those down. Well, we'll post this online. They're not secrets. God will give you the strength you need. God will work all things together for your good. God will take you home. I, let me just say one thing about this real quickly. God will work all things together for your good. The first thing we did when we started our 2020 vision, remember that back in 19, uh, 2013? What an ill-named vision, by the way. 2020 vision. Who could have guessed when we started our television program, we renovated this auditorium, we bought, I mean, we upgraded the sound system, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars getting ready 
for a television program which we aired for five years on WNAB. When the pandemic hit, guess how many churches were not ready to go online? Hundreds of thousands. Guess who was ready? North Boulevard. All the equipment was in place. We'd been doing it for years. Those of you who are on the online campus, now I realize that we didn't know it when we called this campaign the 2020 vision. But God was going to use the 2020 vision literally in 2020 to give us a first-rate, awesome experience online. So that's what He does. That's who He is. So wherever you find yourself now, remember, He's already at work pulling it all together for your good, and He will take you home. He will take you home. Those are seven promises. I love this text. We're right at the end of Genesis. Sixty years have passed since the incident at Bethel with the ladder going back and forth. And now Jacob and his sons are down in Egypt where Joseph has saved the whole clan. He's second in command of the entire nation. Egypt was probably the greatest empire on earth at that time. And because Joseph has saved the clan, Pharaoh says to Jacob, hey, I want you to take the best land. They called it Goshen. I just like the word Goshen. That God took care of them. Every time you meet a Jewish person today, every Jewish surgeon who works on you. Joseph said this, Shulam said this the other day, the CEO of every single drug corporation in America that's working on this vaccination is Jewish. Every single one of them. Next time you run into a Jewish actor or musician or artist, use an attorney who's Jewish, just think back. That's how faithful God is. This happened in the Middle Bronze Age, and 3,500 years later, Jacob's descendants are still here. Where are the Amorites? Where are the Hittites? Where are the Jebusites? Where are all those ancient peoples? But not Jacob's descendants. They're still here, and they still wear his name, as many of you do as well. So you may not know this, but one of our most classic old hymns and one of my favorite songs all time was written about this incident. It's called Nearer My God to Thee. We know it because not only is it a beautiful hymn, but it was sung at, been sung at multiple funerals, funerals of presidents and statesmen and women and kings and queens. It was evidently one of the last songs played when the Titanic sank. It's a song about Jacob's ladder. I asked John if he'd get his group together and help us illustrate the song. So in the first verse, you don't recognize Bethel and the ladder to heaven. But in verses 2 and 3, you do. And that's the verses I've asked these guys to do, is verses 2 and 3. We, let's pull down the lights. I like it better with the lights down. Let me read to you the first verse. So the song was written by Sarah Adams, who uh, uh, she was a um, Unitarian, which I kind of hesitate to call her a Christian because oftentimes Unitarians deny the deity of Jesus. I don't know about her. But here's a woman. So Adam's a British woman. She took care of her younger sister who was, um, had challenges her whole life. She was married, but she never had kids. She was deaf when she wrote this song, and not long after she wrote this song, she died. But man, what a legacy she left us. One of the most beautiful songs ever written. It opens up, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. E'en though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. It's a prayer. It's a request. God, since you're faithful to your promises, teach me to draw near to you. Would you guys take it from here?
It's been a tough year, and it's just about over. The holidays are with us. Some of your family may not be able to be with you for Christmas, but you know who will be with you? The God who never leaves you. And he's faithful to every promise he ever made you. And so I just challenge you this week, draw near to the God who stands at the top of heaven's stairway. Let's sing the last verse together.